Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. Um, if you're, some of you are familiar with the King James Version of the Bible, you'll notice that the uh, first book of Samuel is commonly called the first book of the Kings. Second book of Samuel is the second book of the Kings. The first Kings is commonly called the third book of the Kings. And the second book of Kings is commonly called the fourth book of the Kings. So one, two, three, four, Kings. Um, there's a lot, there's so much to say about this book and we, these books. And we, we have to cover approximately 500 years of Israelite history in a you know, half hour or so. And uh, there's a long way to go with all of that. However... Uh, this, this story, this history, isn't, well, just history. Uh, did, we want, did, want, most of us watched the, uh, the Academy Awards last week. And uh, at one point, you may remember that uh, Spike Lee and others got up to receive an award. And, and he, gave a, he gave a pitch at the end of his, of his talk. And he said basically uh, words that are familiar to us, actually, in other contexts. He said, let's be on the right side of history. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that. Uh, Then he he elaborated, meaning to to be on the side of love instead of hate. With the sentiments, none of us can argue. That's not the point. But that phrase, being on the right side of history, it kind of reminds me of the, another phrase you hear commonly bandied about, uh, uh, referring to the universe as something that is either speaking to me or trying to tell me something. Both of these expressions uh, reflect, at least as a, as, as a person of faith to me, a, a kind of secular way of, of looking uh, at the world uh, with a kind of hopeful transcendence. It's a sort of a way of people who perhaps don't affirm anything beyond what's here now and what you could touch, taste, hear, see, or smell, uh, as a way of sort of grasping beyond that. Well, this history about which we are to embark in Israel's life is not just history. There's no right or wrong side of history. It's an inanimate thing that's humanly made. But there is... God's history. This is what's sometimes called sacred history. And in sacred history, it is a prophetic history of Israel's monarchy. So the subtitle here would give us a sense that this isn't just what one of my uh, history professors in college said, a, the secular view would be something like this. History is nothing but one um, uh, a darn meaningful thing happening after happening after another, one meaningless thing happening after another. But rather, this is a history that is superintended uh, by God. We'll get into a moment uh, into a moment with that. First of all, in the Hebrew Bible, the book book of Samuel and the book of Kings are part of the former prophets. These books are not classified as historical books in the Hebrew Bible as we are accustomed to in our, in our Christian organization of the canon. We, uh, they speak of these as the former or the earlier prophets. And then, of course, the latter prophets are the ones whom we call the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. And, and that the Hebrews want to emphasize by saying that these are the former prophets is that the focus, the, the, the chief agent in all of this are not the people alone, but that there is a movement of God throughout all of this. Now, 
Just in a word about the, the chronology, it's about 500 years, 490 there, from approximately 1075 AD, uh, BC to 585 BC, and that's the last date. I might mention one more date you'll ever hear from me, because there's nothing more turning off to the study of any history than dates, right? So don't worry about it. Just a long time before Jesus. The viewpoint is prophetic. And here, just summarizing much of what Ben has already shared with us uh, in, the, in his uh, explanation and study of the Torah, we have a Deuteronomistic, a Deuteronomistic uh, view of history. And that's spelled out quite simply. God saying, if you do good, then you will live long and prosper in the land. But if you disobey and follow other gods, you shall surely perish. And this pattern from uh, Joshua, Judges, and then through the books of the Kings and Chronicles, becomes the, uh, the touchstone by which Israel's history is measured. However, there is also what I would call a light motif of sovereign grace through all of this. We saw it in Deuteronomy, and we will see it here. That God is the principal actor, is God also working with His people to bring about that salvation that we just celebrated an hour ago. To bring about that son of David with whom we had intimate communion just a half hour ago. And to bring about that salvation that the world uh, so desperately needs. So that, that light motif or, or, or theme of grace surfaces through all of the gore, the blood and guts and the betrayal and the love and the backstabbing, the misery and the human drama that is the story of the kings. So, where do we begin? We begin with Hannah. We go back here. This is on my outline. We're going to just try to go through these four steps. And I'm going to change the analogy from 1,000 foot view to 100 foot view to, um, I love trains. So we're going, to, we're going to, it's going to be kind of like a railroad trip. And not a subway, a railroad. You know how they start so smooth and they just glide almost imperceptibly? There's a magic to that. I love it. And then, and then they pick up speed, and they pick up speed. And then, and then before you know it, it's, if you're in Europe and riding Eurostar, you're doing 157 miles an hour. Uh, maybe we'll get there yet. We're going to begin with Samuel, the transition from the judges. He is sort of the key figure that takes Israel from the period of the judges and Ruth to the uh, king-making and monarchy of the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. Once we hit the end of the United Kingdom, we're going to be going at a full clip and just whiz through the split. Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, mind you, I should have put equal signs between them because those two at the bottom happen concurrently. You have a split in the kingdom and they follow concurrently uh, except that Judah lasts another 130 years longer than Israel. All in all, the story is a sad one. It's a tragedy. It's, it's a story of, of uh, like I say, betrayal, of faithlessness. But through it all, there is that leitmotif, that keynote of grace that impels us forward and will be seen in more detail when uh, ben opens up uh, the first and second chronicles uh, next time. Moving backward, just before Hannah, and even before Ruth, there was the book of Judges. If you haven't found the uh, web um, on, on our website, and there's a podcast of these talks, uh, try to get a hold of it and, and listen uh, to to. Uh, Ben's explications of these, and you can rehear um, uh, Jim's marvelous treatment of, of Ruth. But in the book of Judges, just very briefly, let me recap. The book of Judges was a period of anarchy. Four times it is said there was no king in Israel at that time. Two of the four times it said in those days there was no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Anarchy. 
And it followed a pattern like this. Faithfulness to God, breaking away from that faithfulness into idolatry and immorality. Then the Israelite people are, are oppressed by a, a foreign invader, usually Philistines. These guys never seem to go away. Then they cry out to God for help. God sends them a deliverer, a charismatic leader we call a judge. Most famous of whom is, you remember Gideon, you remember Samson, you remember Deborah, the great judges. Then everything is hunky-dory again, and everyone's back right with the Lord and observing the commandments, and then what do you know? When everything's just fine, they fall away again. And this pattern happens again and again and again, until, with only one little break of grace, and that's the book of Ruth. There's a break of grace in there, where we see in the lives of one little family, already in seed form, the beginning of the redemption of the world. But hey, I'm moving, I'm moving too far ahead. So, we come to Sam, uh, the story of, of Samuel. It begins with Hannah. And um, here I'd like to just take a, a real quick survey uh, from each table. Uh, you want to tell us about Hannah? Who wants to tell us about Hannah? Anybody? Go ahead. Yes. Real quick. So H Hannah is, uh, she's childless. She wants to have a child. She, she goes to the tabernacle to pray. And God answers her prayer. And the answer to that prayer is Samuel. Right. And she dedicates Samuel to service in the tabernacle. Under Eli the high priest and his two sons often things. That's right. Fantastic. Okay, uh, how about Samuel? Anybody want to say something about Samuel? Yes, Molly Jane. So he grows up in the temple, and he's called by God, and there's this whole like, scene where he, Eli is calling him, and he's from Eli, and he says, no, no, like, you're hearing things, and he's like, oh, wait, you're actually hearing the voice of God. Um, and then he grows up and is called by God as his prophet, and he's the one who Okay, he's the kingmaker, that's right. Okay, then uh, a quickie on Saul, anybody? What's, what's the lowdown on Saul? He was the first king. First king, okay, great. And uh, David, we know all about David. Yeah. And Solomon. Well, Solomon's big claim to fame. He built the temple, that's right. Okay, great. We do know some of these things, and just to uh, to go back to uh, to Hannah. So this is this is that dark period of the judges, that that vicious cycle of of faithlessness, of oppression, of deliverance, and then faithfulness once again, only to be broken. And it's it's getting old. Basically, the people of Israel are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and uh, Hannah is also tired and, and despondent about not having a child. And she prays. And uh, Eli the priest um, mistake, mistakes her for, for actually being inebriated in the, in the tabernacle and, and chews her out. He, Eli is a bit slow to get things. We'll find out. But eventually God blesses her with this child. She dedicates this child, Samuel, which means God hears, Shmuel in Hebrew. God hears. He heard her prayer, which she marvelously prayed. Uh, you'll find it in the, uh, in the opening chapters of, of uh, 1 Samuel. A prayer that parallels a prayer in the second chapter of Luke, said by Mary. You know, the Magnificat? My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And uh, Hannah prays the same prayer upon giving birth to, um, uh, to Samuel. And, and it's that with that same prophetic message of, uh, of justice that God is going to bring to the earth. You know, he brought down the mighty and, and the high and mighty and the rich he has sent empty away. Those same sentiments are reflected in the Song of Hannah and in the Magnificat of uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, she offers this child to God, dedicating him in the tabernacle under the tutelage of Eli, the high priest. And uh, in this... What happened to my 
There we go. So tried to find some famous paintings here that reflect this uh, event. And there's Hannah presenting the boy Samuel uh, to the priest Eli. And uh, as uh, as Molly Jamers recounted, at a at a young age, Samuel hears the voice of God. Twice he mistakes it for uh, Eli calling him. The third time Eli discerns this is a calling from God. And that Samuel was to be the transitional figure, the last of the judges and the kingmaker of the kings of Israel. And this was his, to be his mission. He was also to be functioning as a prophet, that he was to be the one who would be the spokesperson for God uh, to the people of God. So what do they do? They say, we want a king just like everybody else. Remember, they're sick and tired of the vicious circle. They figured if we have a king, things will go right. He'll set us straight. Stuff will happen. We'll be great again. And so a king they request. What does God say? Samuel, of course, is uh, upset about this. And God gives him the answer. No, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me that they don't want as king. But go ahead, let him have a king. But if they have a king, remember, he's going to do stuff like tax them to death, conscript their young men into the army, and basically employ their people as semi-slaves to serve the king and his purposes. And so he goes ahead and he uh, anoints Saul. Now, um, this happens to be Samuel anointing David, okay? It's, It's... But to get the idea, he does this to Saul, uh, who is chosen to be the first king of Israel. Saul stands, we're told, head and shoulders above all the valiant warrior men in Israel. He seems to be the fit leader, the right leader. Uh, But right away, things begin to go downhill. Saul is told by God in a particular battle to annihilate the Amalekites. And Saul decides to rather keep some of the uh, spoils of war, the fine animals back, and, and also to um, keep the, uh, the king, King Agag. And in this one incident, uh, uh, Saul is disobeying the word of God through the prophet. Now, I want to refer you back to, to Ben's discussion on Joshua, where he lays out all, uh, five different ways of viewing uh, God's commanding or ordering these kinds of slaughters or annihilations. Okay? We're not going to resolve that here. I don't have a solid answer for that except to say this. As people of faith, we want to avoid two extremes. One extreme is to make God into some kind of a puppet master that just moves people around like pieces on a chessboard. This is not a truly biblical or Christian view of who God is. We don't want to make the equal and opposite error of stripping history of all the supernatural and just saying that it's one meaningless thing after the other and uh, the results of nothing more than people exerting power over other people. For as people of faith, that is a position of despair. But yet, in between, there are many places that we as believers can struggle and go in trying to come to grips with a God who superintends history. I kind of want to leave it at that, because uh, as you read these books of Samuel and Kings, you got all kinds of stuff going on where God says, wipe them out. And, you know, uh, men, women, children, camels, cattle, sheep, and goats. And, and you just go, what do I do with that? And with Ben, I want to just say, I struggle with it. And we struggle as people of faith. Okay, that aside, Saul disobeys the word of the Lord. And, and here comes a, a, brilliant, a, a brilliant saying in here. Samuel comes up to him and quotes these words. He says, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Words that we can hang on. It is better to obey God than to give him lip service. It is better to obey God 
than to put on the appearance of piety. And, and, and we can kind of garner what God is truly saying through this gruesome history, uh, not only to them, but to us. And in this case, Saul defects uh, from, uh, from the Lord, from obeying the Lord. Now we'll get to Dave yet. Okay. Meanwhile, God has rejected Saul and Samuel is instructed to go looking for somebody else. And so he goes and finds the ruddy lad, uh, David, who we saw being anointed earlier, not as king, but as prospective king. It's kind of like a divinely ordained coup d'etat that God has uh, set up here. Here's David. It's one of my favorite David and Goliaths. If you look closely, those guys are all having a great time laughing at him. Uh, they just have no clue what's coming up next. David is chosen to be the next king. He's taken immediately into the service of Saul as his comforter, as his um, counselor. This is a reverend. And um, there's David trying to uh, play before a very disturbed Saul. We're told in the text several times that, uh, that Saul went into what we would call a kind of uh, depression, a kind of uh, a mental illness, it's put in these terms, that an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. You know, when I first read those words years ago, I had no clue what to do with them. In fact, I'll share with you one little personal vignette. Uh, this was before I actually made a commitment to Christ. I was about 20 years old. I was reading the Bible. And those very words were for me a barrier to faith. That an evil spirit from God came upon Saul. I said, that's not fair. Forty-five years later, I'm not sure I still understand those words, but I do understand this. Whatever God is doing is going to work for the best. That God is still the gracious superintendent of history. So, Saul in his, in his uh, mental illness is being assuaged by David, but also... Um, Saul grows jealous of David. You remember when they chanted, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And David, of course, we're told in the scripture, was good looking. He was a great musician. He was a valiant warrior. I mean, this guy was just, he was a man's man, I guess. This guy was, was everything uh, you would want, it seems. And Saul seethed with jealousy and on one occasion tried to kill him, tried to pin him against the wall with a javelin, and then at some point went actually uh, after David um, in a pursuit uh, to, uh, to take his life. David refused uh, to um, uh, take any revenge on two occasions. He had the occasion, he had the opportunity to kill Saul and refuses to do so. Because Saul is, the, is God's anointed. That word anointed, when you pay attention to that word, it is, uh, in the Hebrew for that is Mashiach, which is our English word Messiah. Saul is anointed by God through Samuel, and therefore not to be violated, even when Saul is treating David uh, uh, badly. And so... At some point, Saul comes to a tragic end. It's a great painting here that depicts a desperate King Saul on top of Mount Gilboa, where in a battle with the Philistines, he, his commander is telling him that they're losing. And he says, I will not fall into the hands of the uncircumcised pagans. And he falls on his own sword to kill himself. But you can see there's, there's Saul, head and shoulders. He looks like a leader and comes to a very, very tragic end. David is crowned the king of Israel thereafter, and everything is going wonderful for this guy. Um, he has victory over the, the Philistines, victory over the enemies of Israel. He conquers Jerusalem and consolidates it as the, as the capital of the new kingdom. Um, he's, he's got everything. He says he lives in a palace with cedar panels, and even muses... I'm living in a cedar palace and God is in 
God, the ark of God is in a tent. And he comes up with a great building idea. I want to I build a temple for God. Samuel, being an accommodating priest, says, oh, that's a good idea. Go ahead. Until God intervenes and says, no, that's not going to happen. And this is a key point in that interchange between the human and the divine. God, through Samuel, says to David, you will not build me a house, which he didn't. I will build you a house. That is, I will build for you a dynasty. I'm going to make for you a family tree that will last forever and a king will sit on that throne forever and ever. He will be known as the son of David, the anointed, the Messiah of God. And uh, we all know who that is. David is given what's sometimes called by scholars the Davidic covenant. And that this covenant with David is still in effect today. For there is a king on the throne of David uh, whose name is Jesus. The covenant with David, however, for all the great things that can be said to him right here in the scripture, David, the son of Jesse, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, is the same guy who can do this. David watches. He looks pretty bored up there, doesn't he? His, his men were off to war, you see. Off to battle. And the, what does a king do when he has nothing to do? He hangs around. And he's what? Yeah, don't look too closely, but on the right hand is a little bit of a... Yeah. A little nudity there. But anyway, there, there she is, taking a bath. Bathsheba. And bored David is uh, thinking to himself. Hmm. The rest, the rest of the story, of course, is, is horrifying. She is the wife of one of his trusted generals. And uh, the general comes home on leave from war, refuses to sleep with his wife out of loyalty to his men. David tries to get him to do that, to cover up for the, the adulterous sin they had just committed. And uh, Uriah doesn't do that, so he puts into, into action a plan B. He tells the other generals, take Uriah, Go into the thick of the battle and where it's the worst, draw back from him so he would be killed. And so now we have the sin of adultery and murder laid charged against God's anointed, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Just so we don't think that these guys are Bible heroes to be emulated. If that's the, the biggest takeaway from Scripture is that they are not Heroes in any sense of the word. These are broken, sinful people like you and me. These events of history are in a sense no different than what's going on in the world around us with alliances and betrayals and backstabbings, with disloyalties, with faithlessness. And David, well, he falls into this. He's told by the prophet Samuel, that the sword shall not depart from your house all the days thereafter. Meaning that as you read this text forward uh, from, uh, from here, everything in David's personal life goes to shambles. His, his one, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. Another one of his sons, Absalom, foments a rebellion against him. David has to flee from his own son's private army. Finally, that son is defeated, and David has to uh, bereave the loss of his favorite son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Uh, which, by the way, that's the title of a book by Faulkner. So thank you for, for the plug. Absalom, oh, Absalom. And uh, his life is it's sad, but yet, yet... God's faithfulness is still there. That through, through David, there would be a son born. And that this son would be the next king. And his name is, is Solomon. Solomon the Wise. In this uh, Peter Paul Rubens, I believe, uh, painting. We've got a, a fairly young looking Solomon up there. Making uh, his landmark wise decision. He had asked God for wisdom. Not for riches, not for power, not for glory, 
He said, O Lord, make me wise that I might govern your people. And in this one case, you remember the story. There were two, two prostitutes and, one, and they, uh, they had a child each. One child died. And there was one left. And then one of them, in the middle of the night, slipped the dead baby under the other, uh, next to the other woman and took her live baby uh, with her. Way to steal a child. They go and stand in judgment before Solomon. And Solomon has this idea. Okay, we'll find out who the real mother is. And he orders that the child be divided in half with a sword. And says, there, each can have a half. The real mother cries out and says, no, 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 no. Give it to her. Give the baby to her. Give it to her. Because out of that motherly compassion, she cried out. The other woman cynically says, no, 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 cut the kid in half and we'll both go away with nothing. And thereby we're told, Solomon in his wisdom discerned the truth in judgment. But then here again, Solomon also rose to even greater heights by doing what David wanted to do so badly. He built the temple. Probably there are many different renderings of what the temple looked like. This is probably probably the most accurate, where you have the uh, the bronze seat, that basin on the back of twelve oxen that carried the water for the ablutions and the washings, and then you had the altar of burnt sacrifice, which was basically a, a humongous barbecue pit on which to uh, sacrifice animals. And then, of course, the temple building itself, where inside were two rooms, the uh, holy place and the holy of holies, where the ark of God was kept, and the presence of God was, was said to dwell. Solomon uh, did this, and um, it was his greatest accomplishment, the temple of Solomon in 1 Kings 5 and 6. But here again... Solomon had a downside. And that downside uh, was that he, he, like many other many, um, um, Middle Eastern potentates, kings, had a collection of trophy women, I guess you would call them. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines for a total of 1,000 kept women in his harem. Uh, he's notorious for that. Now, they all did this. David had a few hundred himself, and yeah, it was a thing to do, um, mostly for prestige. You know, the more you had, and from, and it was from different nations, so you had, you know, Moabites and Edomites and, you know, people from all kinds of heights from all over the place. And the trouble is, a lot of them did not worship the true God. And you know what Solomon did? Yes, he built the temple of the Lord. He also erected shrines for their personal gods. Mistake. The judgment of God came upon him. And a prophet came to him and said, I will tear the kingdom from you and rip the cloak in two. And that is just exactly what happens at the end of Solomon's reign. He dies, and he has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was definitely not his father's son. This is a wonderful reproduction from an ancient church fresco. You see the masonry uh, between the stones there. This guy was your politician's worst nightmare. He, remember when God said that if you have a king, the king is going to tax you, he's going to conscript your sons, he's going to lay burdens upon you. You know, that's the trade-off for having a strong leader. This guy said, if you think my father was bad, wait till you get me. You see him holding his pinky out like that? I'm going to quote the scripture. Uh, so this is in the Bible, this is not Douglas Dallas speaking. He says, my little finger is bigger than my father's loins. Now take that however one may. But the suggestion made by this politician, and seems to be a, a, 
a thing with some politicians to uh, boast about their prowess. And uh, I guess he had a little, a little hand. <laughs> but anyhow, King Rehoboam stands before Israel and says, My father scourged you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. I'm going to lay it on thick. I'm going to be your worst nightmare. You can guess how that went. Another fellow by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, said, no way. We're not, we're not going to listen to this stuff. He mobilized ten of the twelve tribes of Israel into a rebellion, and they seceded from the kingdom. And that secession now divided Israel into two kingdoms, the north and the south. In the kingdom of Israel in the north, we have the ten tribes that seceded under the leadership of Jeroboam I, the king. The scripture tells us, and this is sort of that divine superintendence again, teaches us that all the kings of the north were evil. Every one of them, you will find this phrase, and Asa did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, Ahab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, etc. The capital was Samaria. Names familiar? Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And its religious centers, and this is a big deal. He didn't want, Jeroboam didn't want his people going down to Jerusalem to worship God. Because that might compromise his leadership and, and, his, and their national integrity. So he erects two shrines at the top of the blue. Unfortunately, it's not there. But right at the top of the blue, there's a town called Dan, D-A-N. And another shrine down at Bethel. It's there in the in the, um, Anglicized Hebrew as Bethel. Bethel. And he puts these alternative shrines as the places for the people to worship Yahweh. But unfortunately, that worship degenerated into the worship of other deities. We'll see. The kingdom of Judah is smaller. Its capital remained in Jerusalem. Um, it, was, it included the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, as well as the uh, authentic priesthood. Uh, its king was Rehoboam. Some kings were good. Some kings were evil, but I would add, all were flawed. And its capital, Jerusalem, and its religious center was the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which was the place where the Lord placed his name. So we have this schism. We have these two kingdoms, and they, at times they almost uh, go to civil war. But part of this narrative is that God worked it out that this would happen. In fact, at the beginning, Rehoboam was about to start uh, a civil war and attack the north, and God says to him through the prophet, don't, leave it be. This is the way I've set it up. So now we've got two kingdoms. We've got one kingdom retaining the name Israel, and the other one calling itself Judah, where we will, down through history after the exile, will get our name for the Jewish people. The Jews come from Judah. And that, that's where we get that name. Okay. What happened in Dan and Bethel and up north? And these are actual artifacts, probably from uh, either the, the Jewish Museum or some antiquities in Israel. They worshipped the Canaanite heathen deities. On the left you have what's called an Asherah pole. As you can see it, it's a feminine figure. It's... Uh, it was regarded also as a, a form of obscenity and uh, uh, sex worship, if you will, uh, fertility. On the right is, is her consort, the god Baal, who Baal means Lord, by the way, in uh, Canaanite. Um, and uh, Baal was the uh, lord of um, fertility, was the god of productivity. And in his right hand, there's supposed to be a lightning bolt whereby he is controlling the cosmos. At Dan and Bethel, these gods replaced Yahweh 
the God of Israel. And therefore, the northern kingdom fell into apostasy very, very quickly. And this is where we're going to speed up now and concentrate mostly uh, on the northern kingdom. Okay? Um, the southern kingdom will be done in more detail when Ben takes us through the Chronicles that focus exclusively on, on Judah. But we'll spend the most of our remaining time here on what's going on up north. And what's going on isn't good. There's a succession of kings who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as I just quoted, and caused Israel to sin. Just There's a succession of them, but I'll pick out certainly the, if you want to say the worst one of the bunch, was this guy King Ahab up there in the blue robes. This was the best picture I could find. It's one of those, I guess, Sunday school pictures. But it's pretty, it pretty much says it all, right? It's, it's pretty cool. There's Ahab and his, his evil wife Jezebel. And uh, the prophet Elijah is uh, basically, you know, giving it to them in the name of the Lord. And the good news in all of this horror is that God did not take away his word even in the midst of apostasy. The fountain... <clears throat> The fountainhead, as some called it, of prophecy itself, is laid at the feet of Elijah. Uh, as Jake just preached in the sermon, that Elijah, uh, opposite Moses and on the side of Jesus, represents prophecy. He represents God intervention into history and speaking truth to power, speaking right to wrong, speaking justice to injustice. And here's the prophet. Elijah, telling them off. Um, Jezebel had a particularly, um, um, uh, particularly awful disdain for this man and went after him for his life. On one occasion, do you remember the, the contest on Mount Carmel? Yes. Yeah, that, I love that story. I wish I was there. But they're on Mount Carmel and the prophet Elijah challenges the priests of Baal of that, that fertility God we saw. Go ahead. Sacrifice to your God. Put up a, you know, put an animal on the altar, make an altar, and, and call upon your God, and he'll send down lightning. And, you know, and I'm going to call on my God, and whoever, whichever God answers is the true God. So they go. The priests start wailing and dancing and howling. At one point, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're getting exhausted, and, and the prophet Elijah says, it's in the scriptures. He says, you might want to shout louder. Your God might be busy or he can't hear you. On another occasion, at that same, in that same occasion, he says, perhaps, perhaps Baal is, is on the toilet. You know, he went to the bathroom. The text sort of lends itself uh, to interpret that way. And uh, at the end of the day, the priests of Baal are gashing themselves with knives. You know, they just, they're beside themselves. That... Baal is not answering. Comes the time for the evening sacrifice. Vespers, as we know as Christians. Even so. I like to think about five o'clock. Elijah gets up, puts the animal on the altar, and just for, just for good measure, douse it with water. Douse it again. Get the wood wet. Fill the trench around the altar with water. And he just says a simple prayer to the Lord. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice and dries up all the water into steam. The priests of Baal are dumbfounded. They shout, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah orders them to be uh, <clears throat> annihilated afterwards. It's part of the story. How do we read that? For us today, we read that, well, we read that the Lord is God. That the Lord does govern heaven and earth. And uh, he does things differently today than he did then. Jezebel doesn't like this. The priests of Baal are on her payroll. They're her friends. And she goes after him. And uh, Elijah goes into the wilderness of Sinai. And he says a prayer 
that maybe some of us find ourselves praying. Oh Lord, I'm the only one left. Everybody else has abandoned you. I don't know about you, but it's tempting for me sometimes in our cultural setting to think, man, I'm a dinosaur. I still believe in God. I still worship the Lord Jesus. But our, hey, there we go. But our culture, yeah, is moving far away. What does God say? Not in the thunder, not in the lightning, not in the earthquake, but in the still, small voice. God says, be encouraged. Be encouraged. There are yet 7,000 people in all of Israel, the north, in all of apostate Israel, who have not bent their knee to Baal. And Elijah is strengthened in his faith. There are yet those who still believe, who are still faithful to Yahweh. Elijah is a marvelous ministry. I could go on. There are more stories, but we'll, we'll just have to go on to say that he does some here miracles, of, uh, healings of miracles, of healings, of multiplication of food. He has an understudy by the name of Elisha. And on one, on, uh, one occasion, here's the handing off of the mantle to Elisha. This, oh, make that big. This is a Byzantine icon uh, depicting the fiery ascension, ascension of the holy prophet Elijah. And you'll see he's in a chariot of fire being taken into heaven. And his cloak, or his mantle, hence the phrase the mantle of leadership, is falling on Elisha down below, uh, who receives the, the unction, the, uh, the authority to carry on the prophetic ministry in Israel. And uh, I love this, this icon. I think it, it, it says it well. Uh, icons are, are not so much a realistic depiction as a theological depiction of what's going on here. You see very clearly where Elisha, Elijah is being entered into the heavenly sphere and yet the power and authority of his ministry being handed down uh, to the upturned hands of Elisha. Elisha goes on to have a, uh, a stellar ministry in, um, in Israel. Well, what happens here? Israel is gone. I mentioned one more date. 722 BC. The Assyrians came and sacked Samaria and conquered the kingdom of Israel and destroyed it. And uh, it was sometimes, you hear the expression, the so-called ten tribes of Israel, lost ten tribes of Israel. It, that's where it comes from. But they're not entirely lost. What the Assyrians did was they took some people away and then they took other people and mixed them. They, they, they mixed the ethnicities so as to prevent any kind of an organized uh, insurrection. And so that mixed people uh, that lived in the northern part of, of uh, Palestine uh, were many, many centuries later to become the Samaritans that were always on the outs with the Jews in the south. So what became a Judah? And this is a And we'll end with this. I think Ben will have a lot to say about uh, this southern kingdom. But following Rehoboam, the southern kingdom of Judah had a number of kings, some good, some evil, all flawed. Uh, Jehoshaphat, don't you, well, I like that name, right? jumping Jehoshaphat. Uh, Jehoshaphat comes with a mixed review. He did what was good in the sight of the Lord, but unfortunately he didn't tear down all of the pagan shrines that were uh, around the country. Uzziah was good, and here is where we get Isaiah's ministry popping up. Isaiah chapter 6, it says what? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and His train and glory filled the temple in the year that Uzziah died. Then there was Hezekiah, also under the ministry of the prophet 
Isaiah, and he was a good king. Then came Manasseh. Bad, bad, and super bad. Manasseh was the Ahab of the Sabbath. He's followed by uh, his son Ammon. I didn't put him up there. It was even worse. And then Josiah, the boy king, who initiated a reformation that uh, we'll speak of more and more detail uh, in the uh, first and second chronicles. In Josiah is where the book of the law is found. It is assumed that it is the book of Deuteronomy, which is where we get the, the, the this idea of the Deuteronomistic uh, theology. That you know, the, if you do good in the land, you will prosper. If you disobey and be faithful, the land shall spit you out. The Deuteronomistic theology. And then finally, there's Zedekiah. He's a bad one. He's the last king. And he's carried off as Jerusalem burns. I would note for you that uh, those people leaving Jerusalem had a long journey ahead. They couldn't go straight across the desert because they would run out of water and food. They had to go along the Fertile Crescent, north to the headwaters of the Euphrates, and then south into what is now Iraq, or the site of Babylon. Jerusalem was burned, and King Zedekiah, the son of David, the anointed, very flawed king, is taken captive. He tries to get away, but he's caught. And the armies of Nebuchadnezzar take him prisoner. They kill his sons in his sight. And then they gouge out his eyes and carry him off to chains. And that's the tragic end of the kings of Israel. But never forget, there's that light motif of grace that has carried us through. And the story ain't over yet. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal Sanchi Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.